Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Angela Ferkus, professor of history at Cotty College in Nevada, Missouri, to talk about her new book, America's Early Women Celebrities. The famous ones formed from Martha Washington to silent film star Mary Fuller out this year, that's 2021, with McFarland and Company. Hello, Angela. Hi. Um, it's actually Nevada, Missouri. <laughs> ah, of course it is. You know, um, I lived next door to Nevada, Iowa. Yeah. <laughs> so I should have known. Um, <laughs> so how are things in Nevada, Missouri right now? Um, things are great. Yeah, we're back in the classroom, even though we're social distancing and masking, and we've been able to avoid any big outbreak. So it, it's been good Yay. this semester. Yay. So tell me about Cotty. It's a women's college, yeah? It is, yes. A women's college that is owned by the PEO Sisterhood. And uh, we have uh, four-year programs as well as some associate degree programs. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, I would love to teach at a women's college. That sounds so delightful. Uh, Excellent. All right. So our first job here is to place your current work in um, your academic trajectory. And I'm looking at your CV, and I see a lot of work on labor in the progressive era, uh, kind of in the middle of the country. So like, for instance, Little Lives Saved, C.J. Nordmeyer, Missouri's Child Labor Crusader, Joplin Threatened with Silence, the Telephone Operator Strike of 1902 to 1903, and Agricultural Extension and the Campaign to Assimilate Native Americans of Wisconsin, 1913 to 35. So this shows a particular pattern. But this book seems to extend beyond your usual scope, time-wise. So tell me how you came to do this book. Well, you're right to point out that I've had many different interests in my research. It's, it's not really the best way to become a scholar that's recognized in any particular field, so I realize that. But um, I really have just had so many interests within the broad U.S. social history field. And so I originally, out of grad school, was publishing in Native American history, Western history. But then I became interested in helping with a local museum. And so that really got me interested in Missouri history as well. But as we were talking about, I work at a women's college and I've taught women's history for over 20 years. And in the course of teaching that course, I have always been interested in identifying women who were extremely famous during their own time period, but that we've kind of forgotten about, that we've, we've lost this, this cultural memory about them. And so for a long time, I've really wanted to be able to write a book like this. And when I had the opportunity to have a sabbatical and start the research, I just jumped on it. This was something that had been on my mind for a long time. Very cool. Um, Yeah, it seems like there there are these women who would just disappear into the darkness, you know, if you weren't writing about them. Um, Yeah. And I can see some kind of holes in the historiography. Um, Is there anything that we really need Um, to understand when we go into this book? Like, how should we think about these women? 
Well, I think that when I started this research, I didn't think about them as celebrities. I, I really wanted to to see them as maybe heroes or inspirational stories, and, and that's really how I approached it at first. But I started to read some of their biographies and, and some other works that started to refer to them as celebrities, and I, I really was intrigued by that idea, wondering how someone from the 19th century, early 19th century even, could be considered a celebrity when there was no national media or there, there was no, no sense of, of a way for that person to become nationally known. So I was intrigued by that idea of celebrity and I really went back. So I, I think that, that um, readers can approach this book without really having any other sense than just an interest in, in who the women are and why they sought this kind of notoriety. You have a wide variety of sources, uh, material culture, visual sources. So can you tell us about that? What did you use? Well, always when I was trying to frame a chapter, I started with the biographies, the possible biographies of each of the women, and then went to any autobiographical or collection of letters that they had. But then trying to get the fan perspective, trying to understand how they were seen by both the media that existed at the time, as well as their fans, I went to periodicals and newspapers and did a lot of searching of that image in that kind of a way too. Yeah, it seems like there would have been a lot of uh, what my advisor used to call uh, looking for needles in a stack of needles. <laughs> like, yeah. um, just lots of, I can see a lot of time with uh, newspaper collections, our old friend, the microfilm reader. Actually, it's become so much easier now with um, the Library of Congress having the Chronicling America series, which is a database that's online that you can search, which has hundreds of newspapers. And then also things like Google Books, where you can search periodicals from this early time period, too. So it, I'm not saying that it was easy to find, um, <laughs> find this stuff. It was, some days I did feel like I was looking for needles among needles, right? But, um, but it much easier than going sure. to the microfilm, yeah. Yeah, the whole digital humanities is a game changer. Uh, not for 17th century Italian scholars, but that's our <laughs> own problem. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's an Italian-specific issue. Um, okay, so the other question uh, that I think, like before we talk about a couple of women, I want to get at is like, what is, how do you define celebrity? Like, what did you use to determine how famous these women were? What What are the pre modern markers? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and I and I think that that this period that I look at up to about 1920 is really fascinating because most people would assume that you don't really get celebrities until you have Hollywood. Right. And so, so it was a, a good ending point for my book because you don't have to convince anybody that a movie star is a celebrity. Right. And so, so really the biographies that I looked at and the history of celebrity that has been pretty vibrant over the last 10 years really points to three things. Right. So it is the star herself who has to 
want to really promote herself in a large way. I mean, people can be famous by accident, but you're not going to maintain that kind of level of fame just by accident usually, right? So the the person herself has to want to be a celebrity. And then there has to be some kind of uh, recognition by media of some sort, right? There has to be some kind of publicity campaign for this person, because otherwise it's really difficult to maintain that kind of position in front of the public, right? And then you have the fans, right? So you, you need to have um, all three legs of this stool, as some of the historians are talking about. And so for me, what I really wanted to do during this book, for this book, is to find women who really did then pursue this idea of a relationship with their fans. And so that's the way that I try to pursue each of the chapters is to look at what was the woman's situation? Why did she want to be famous? And then how did she foster this relationship with her fans and anti-fans, right? So some people who didn't like these women, um, they were just as as avid in showing that as people who really loved these women too, right? And I guess for me, I put the media almost in that same category of fan and anti-fan because it's the editors of these newspapers who decide which of these women to promote or which of them to criticize or not. And so, um, so yes, there's a three-legged stool there, but I, I, in my book, I kind of put the media more in with the fan and anti-fan. So, um, so, so for me, that was my definition. A, a woman who has fostered a relationship with fans in order to maintain a celebrity status. And I'm thinking about how we get at how fans are feeling, right? We can see how the media portrays. There are a few um, just really ridiculous episodes you talk about in the book, (laughs) which we'll get to in a minute. But I'm, you know, how do you, how can you tell how someone's reacting to her? What are you reading for that? Well, that was obviously the most difficult part. I I really hoped that I would be able to find more of the fan voice for this time period, but I was working with things that other historians had uncovered. And so this is something that fan studies um, is is very popular. And there are a lot of people who are looking through diaries, looking through letters, trying to piece together what people were saying about celebrities. And so I was able to use a lot of those secondary sources um, so that I didn't have to then go to those primary sources myself. But um, wherever I could, I looked at microfilm and look and asked for the, um, the archives to send me photocopies of for instance, poetry that was written for Elizabeth Patterson Bonaparte, or um, you know, I I just I tried to to search and then track down everything that I could, but um, but but yeah, that was that was very difficult to find that voice. You know, it's so funny. I talk to historians about this all the time, and we always go in and we have a plan, and we're like, and I looked at this, and I looked at this, but then eventually you get around to, and then I just kind of looked at anything I could get my hands on, and then eventually I just started reading all of the things. It's it's the it's the it's the job. Yes. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, if if only you know now, if somebody wants to do that now, you just you have Twitter, mm-hmm. all the Twitter. Don't I do not envy historians of this period, <laughs> right? Ooh. Um. So you 
but but how did you choose the women you included? That's a um, a great question too, because obviously there's very famous women celebrities of this time period that I was not able to fit into the book. So the way that I started was I looked for the women for each of the time periods and had kind of a list. So I, I, the book is chronological. So I started with the, the, um, the colonial period and I thought about, so reading biographies and, and seeing whether other people had termed them celebrities and whether I could use that or not. And so for every list, for every chapter that I had, I tried to see if there was some way to connect the two women. So if they're if they were contrasts in some way or whether they had some, and, and this I found more than I thought I was going to, some uncanny meeting or connection that I had no idea about previously. And so I, I wanted to, to highlight two women who had some kind of a connection. And then to also, for each chapter, have some additional theme that demonstrates something interesting about early celebrity. And so, um, so it, it was hard coming up with the, the, the people for each of the chapters, but it was a, a very fun process to go through. Yeah, I can imagine. And so you have nine separate chapters, and most of them feel, follow the pattern of chapter one, Phyllis Wheatley and Martha Washington, Symbols of Genius and Amiability. Um, and then uh, then like chapter eight, which is Annie Oakley and Women of Action. That just, that's yeah. so many cool women. <laughs> <laughs> um I mean, I can, you can see the, the two women and how they connect and it, it allows you to uh, go into a bit of depth about them and then tell a story wherein you extrapolate a little bit more and tell us a bit about the period as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So of course, for the the women of action, so many of them were only famous for a very short period of time. And so I, Annie Oakley was celebrity, you know, from <laughs> from when she became a celebrity up until her, um, up until her death. But, but these other women really came splashed onto the scene and then disappeared. And in fact, for some of them, we don't even know what their death date was. They were, they were so obscure after a while. So I, I thought that there was not a good one person counterpart, but I thought maybe collectively they would serve as an interesting story. Yeah, I agree. It did. It was very cool. Um, yeah, Annie Oakley. I mean, she's so famous still. I knew about Annie Oakley when I was wee, like a really small kid. Um, and a lot of these women, of course, know Martha Washington for sure. But um, I learned about like so many new women um, that I, I. It's so interesting. So actually, I would let, let's talk about a particular chapter. I want to talk about chapter four, which is Fanny Elsler. And Jenny Lind, Conquering America Through Art and Humbug. What's humbug? <laughs> um, humbug, it was really a word that had been used for a long time before that. And it, it basically was used as a word meaning that someone had really pulled the wool over you, right? That, that they had convinced you of something that was not true. And so using it in this context is that you have someone like P.T. Barnum, of course, who becomes the, the classic example of humbug, who creates 
a situation where everybody wants to go and see Jenny Lind or hear her sing or go to his museum or, or do something like that, but that there's really no substance behind it. So, um, so that, that's really the idea of humbug. All right. Well, let's, let's talk about her. We'll do it in kind of reverse order. So let's talk about Jenny Lind, who is a singer. She's English. Um, she was from Sweden. Ah, okay. Lind is a Swedish name, but she, yes. have you, she was in England or something when you, yes, when uh-huh. she came up. Okay. When, yeah. well, and when Barnum went to basically fetch her, right? Like found her and brought her over. He's, he sent um, someone to do that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So she was on tour in England. She had, she had performed all through Europe and um, she had performed for Queen Victoria. And, and so she just happened to be performing in London when P.T. Barnum sent someone to, to try to encourage her to come to the United States. Yeah. And what was his motivation for this? Oh, his motivation, of course, is money. Just yeah. money. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he saw this as a unique opportunity. And I and I think that that okay, so everybody knows about Jenny Lynn, but Fanny Elsler, the ballerina who's also in that chapter, serves as a really good contrast to what's going on here because with Fanny Elsler, there is this idea that she is this wonderful artist and she was. She was considered the best ballerina of the world at the time. But that her private life was a little bit suspect. And not Amer- the general American did not know that she had two children, even though she had never been married, and that she probably had been a mistress from a very young age. And, and so this, this was part of being an artist of the time period. If you didn't have a sponsor, if you didn't come from a rich family, that you were going to have to take your sponsorships where they came. And sometimes there were strings attached to those sponsorships. And so, so she had, she had done what she needed to do to, to have a successful career. But when that started to be revealed to Americans, when she was in the United States, there becomes this huge backlash. I mean, the United States has recently been going through uh, the Second Great Awakening, a religious revival movement, and Americans start to wonder, you know, is it is it really good for us to celebrate this woman who has such a, a, a bad morality um, a reputation, right? And so what P.T. Barnum saw was that Jenny Lind had none of those questions about her private life at all. And so he thought that the Fanny Elsler campaign could have been much more lucrative. It's, it was very lucrative, but it could have been, it, they could have made much more money if she herself had not had a checkered past. And so P.T. Barnum then really looked for someone who would serve that purpose. And Jenny Lind was the perfect person because she she was by all accounts was she gave away a lot of her money she she um was a sponsor of schools and orphanages and she was beyond reproach in most ways and so she served as as the perfect example for him to use to make a lot of money (laughs) and a foil for fanny elsler um but like, I think we should point out just just how famous she was. Like, uh, you were describing scenes that made me think about watching when the Beatles came to America <laughs> in the sixties, right? <laughs> 
Yes. I mean, she would be mobbed. Yeah. Um, the crowds ripping apart a shawl that she would, that she would drop, you know, for souvenirs and, and, um, the, the, a woman who wanted to meet her bribing the maid who was supposed to bring her tea so that this woman could dress in her uniform and serve her tea. I mean, yeah, it's, it's amazing stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You open uh, that chapter by talking about someone who's wearing one of her shoes, right? (laughs) Fanny Elster's ballerina shoe. Ballerina (laughs) shoes, like some sort of, um, you know, like a necklace. (laughs) but, But then she falls out of favor and is replaced by this other woman of a much more pure character. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. That's very interesting. And I want our our listeners to understand that this, this kind of pattern continues throughout the book. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, Something else that um, just from this chapter um, that I saw uh, that we see throughout the book and it really came up in this chapter was the marketing surrounding these women. So obviously Mm -hmm. PT Barnum's involved, but um, this chapter has an image of Boggs and Gregor's Jenny Lind fine cut Cavendish tobacco, which is <laughs> hilarious. I mean, hilarious product placement. Um, right. But just one example of the myriad products you could get with her image or her stamp, right? Mm-hmm. So, can you tell us a bit about this, like the marketing in the Jenny Lindiana, and et cetera? <laughs> Yeah. So this was a, a small part of all of the chapters up before this one because there was some degree of marketing. Um, so none of these women had control over their image or their name. Anybody during this time period could open up a tavern and call it the Lady Washington, for instance, and there was really nothing that, that anybody could do. Or somebody could, as, as you said, market a product under the name of Jenny Lind. And so this had been going on for a long time, but in a, a very small degree in comparison with Jenny Lind. So there, there certainly were Fanny Elsler products, but once Jenny Lind is rumored to be coming to the United States, and she had already been getting a lot of media attention even before she arrived, then those people who were selling products just see this as a perfect opportunity to remarket whatever goods they were selling with her name. And she had no recourse. She could, she, she would not have wanted her name on tobacco or many of the other kinds of products that were marketed with her name. But, but the situation was that she had no recourse for that, that that could just happen. And so, of course, there were, there were things that were a little bit more appropriate, sink, silk handkerchiefs and um, tea kettles, you know, a singing tea kettle would be <laughs> something that, that would make more sense. But then you have the things like tobacco as well. And yeah. So I think that's an interesting demonstration of the way these women have some control over their image, right? You know, what they let people know, but then in other ways, it's completely beyond their control. uh, In some ways, they stop being their own person and they start to be a public property. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And and we certainly see that develop, I think, as the chapters go on. In the in the first chapter, Phyllis Wheatley, Martha Washington, they're able to pretty much use the the system to create an image. And we don't know much more about them than the image that was created. And and scholars have tried for a long time to, to piece together more about 
what Martha Washington might have really been like, but because she burned her letters and because she didn't keep a diary that we know of, if she did keep one, she destroyed it before she died. So, so we just don't really know. But and, and most Americans seemed okay with seeing them as symbols, right? That they, they didn't pry, the media didn't pry. But we see that breaking down until, as you say, with this chapter with Jenny Lynn and Fanny Elsler, um, people just want to know. And so the stories come out about Elsler's past and, um, and there's, there's, she loses control over mm-hmm. that. She has, she has no way to be able to prevent that from coming out. But then subsequent women will see an opportunity to create a public persona that then will satisfy the curiosity of the public so that they can keep their private life mm-hmm. a little bit more, more secret. Um, it doesn't always work, <laughs> but, um, but it's certainly a, um, a something that they try to use. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and the idea of the creation of a a public persona as a something that you will do, which is now an essential part of celebrity. Exactly. Um, You know, even like celebrity, I'm making air quotes, listeners, um, (laughs) you know, just like the idea of creating a a work persona. There is the the person you are in front of your students is a different than you are here. And you can all you have limited control over that as well. It's interesting, though, because with these women, there is the commodification. There's like the, this marketing that happens. Mm-hmm. And it seems like um, there's a lot of women who's, who uh, have to deal with men. Right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. that, that's a really banal statement that applies to all of human history, isn't it? <laughs> but um, women dealing with men. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but that you have these men who um, – are taking over and controlling and, you know, Barnum is a perfect example of Jenny Lynn. Mm -hmm. That seems to be a a theme throughout. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and definitely for the first few chapters of this book, we're dealing with a time period when married women could not legally even own property without Mm -hmm. getting a special court order. Right. I mean, so it's, it's a time period when, when women needed to look to men for Mm -hmm. signing contracts and for doing these things because women did not have an identity of their own. Now, of course, that's breaking down during this time period. And by the later chapters in the book, we, we do have married women's property rights laws that allow for these married women to have the right to their own wages, their own royalties, all of that. But at the beginning of this time period, that that's not even true at all. Yeah. So yeah. Uh-huh. That it, doesn't it, even exist. Yeah. You're right, right. So it's amazing that these that these women were as successful doing it as they were because of all of these restrictions on their abilities to 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 um, to be an active participant in their own economic situation. Yeah. Well, and if you think about the incredibly um, just small horizons that most women have, mm-hmm. the idea that you could as, I mean, just being a single woman is suspect. You're not placed, you know, and that mm-hmm. we see women going out and doing these kind of things is really impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But I, I mean, it seems like there's, um, there's also this theme that the women who are able to manage the men in their lives are more successful and happier throughout. That's <laughs> something I seem to read throughout this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So you like, let's talk about these kind of broad changes because you include women. We start with Martha Washington um, and Phyllis Wheatley. 
and go on to, I mean, like the women who die in the early 20th century, right? Mm -hmm. So what kind of broad changes can you identify or do you want to talk about regarding the roles of celebrity women? Well, I think that a number of the things we've already been talking about, the creation of a public persona and how that becomes so much more important the further in towards the 20th century that you get until so the the last two women that I deal with are Jane Adams and Mary Fuller so Jane Adams the social worker Hull House creator and and um, Mary Fuller was a silent screen star that most people have forgotten about. She was more famous than Mary Pickford at the time period, but but she um, has has been largely forgotten. But one of the reasons is that both she and Jane Adams came to a conclusion that they had kind of had enough of celebrity and they wanted to walk away from it. And so it it becomes, I think, during the course of the book that celebrity becomes there's obviously still benefits. There's economic benefits, there's ego benefits, there's, mm-hmm. there's all kinds of benefits. But in a lot of ways, when you approach the 20th century, some women are just not going to feel that it's worth it anymore. And I think that these two women are, are very good examples of women who, who saw what celebrity could do for them and then in some ways said, you know, it, it's just... It's just not what I want. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, some women have a hard time with it. You see some women for whom it becomes very uh, invasive. And then there are women like, how do you feel? What about Victoria Woodhull? How does she feel about her celebrity? I love her, by the way. She's one of my like, favorite women in history. Right, right. Yeah. So she, I mean, named after Queen Victoria, uh, she declared pretty early on, it appears, that she was going to be famous. And I, I think for her, for, for many of the women that I, that I talk about, it's economics that is the primary driver for them to seek out celebrity. Because as we were talking about, women were had were disadvantaged in terms of economics during this time period. There's no profession for much of the time period that I'm talking about that women can make very much money, but being a celebrity can be very, very lucrative. And so for most women, it was economics. But for a few of them, you really get the sense that they crave the spotlight um, and that it's more than just the economics. I think for Victoria Woodhull, she craved the spotlight and um, she also was very serious about a number of causes. She did more for women's suffrage during the time period when she was active in it than most of the women that we give credit for during that time period. I mean, she she really was was a, a um, made a, got a lot of publicity for the movement and spoke in front of Congress and, and did things that, that other women had not done. And so, so for her, I think, I think that she really wanted to be someone who was known and, um, and that was something driving her. Sure. Actually, uh, will you just for, tell us a little bit about Victoria Woodhull? Okay. Um, so Victoria Woodhull was born into a, a not not wealthy family. They 
they were in a lot of ways um, kind of grifters that they they would use mesmerizing and and these schemes to um, tr- to try to make money. And Victoria Woodhull tried to escape that by marrying a doctor very young, but her husband ended up being an alcoholic and was not going to provide the kind of lifestyle that she craved, which would be a more comfortable lifestyle than what she had been raised in. And so she realized pretty early on that if she was going to have a comfortable lifestyle, she was going to have to provide it. And so she ends up going to New York with her sister and her, her husband is there too, but he's, he's not um, um, part of the scheme. And then she remarries. So she has a second husband after divorcing the first one. And she's able to make a name for herself and get backing from very prominent people to start a stock brokerage firm and she starts a newspaper and she runs for president even though she's not actually old enough to run for president so she does these these things that are are um, reported about in the media of New York of the time period but then she's also doing some of these very serious things like I said the the women's suffrage work but then in her newspaper for instance she publishes serious interviews about the um, the spread of communism in Europe and um, ideas of that were not being published in any of the other newspapers of the United States at the time. So, so she is a fascinating woman who is a celebrity through and through because much of what she is trying to do, I mean, she, she probably felt very strongly about some of these causes, but really she uses them to make a name for herself as well. Sure. Well, and I mean, she may well have had a point with running for president, but <laughs> that's clearly not, she, the end of that is not meant to be the presidency. Oh, right, right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. And, you know, she's just this other example too. She does the right thing. She marries a doctor. That should do it. it should give her safety and status and take care of it. And then it, that didn't work. So she's like, well, then I'll just go be an adventurous, I guess. Like, <laughs> fair enough. Yeah. Um, so she's probably my favorite woman you talk about. What's who's <laughs> your favorite? Or do you have a favorite? I mean, oh, you must. oh, I have many favorites. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, well, y- you know, one woman that I really enjoyed spending time with is Paiute Native American woman, Sarah Winnemucca. I obviously knew about her, but I didn't know very much about her. And so I took the opportunity to read her book and many of her articles and really came to admire her strength and her wry sense of humor. She had a wonderful sense of humor that comes out in all of her writing and the amount of of just animosity that she gets in the press because of her race is just incredible. The, the kinds of things that were published about her. So for her to continue to speak out for her tribe and for other um, Native peoples in the face of all of this negative press was was really heartbreaking in a way, but also mm-hmm. inspiring that she was able to look past the negativity mm-hmm. and, and really try to do good for her people. So so I really loved her. As we already talked about, the um, the women of action are just amazing. The bicycle racers that 
were at the turn of the 20th century performing on these closed banked tracks where the speed that they were racing was incredible without any kind of protection and how injured they would get and so um so the the tightrope walkers and the balloonists and all, all of those women were extremely interesting to spend some time with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and that whole kind of that, that, uh, that like the, the, the freak show kind of thing, the Wild West shows, like that's a very interesting moment in American history. Well, in world history, you know, there, um, and how the women doing these utterly unwomanly things become so moving. Right. Yeah. So Sarah Winnemucca, you pair her with Sojourner Truth. Um, how did you make that decision? Well, um, I, I knew I was going to want to try to get Sojourner Truth in the book because she's someone that I've known about for a long time. And in the, in the context of that rewritten speech, so so most people who know about Sojourner Truth can say that, oh, she she gave that speech about ain't I a woman, right? right. And and so I I kind of wanted to to explore and to reveal the creation of that speech, which is not very factual, and that she didn't use that language, and that that speech was rewritten by a white woman, and, and words were put in her mouth. And so that was one of the things that I was really intrigued about. So I was I was trying to see how race fit into this story, because clearly we've been talking about white women mm-hmm. whose whose parameters were rather narrow in terms of what they could do, but for a woman of color during this time period, much narrower, right? Mm-hmm, and so, right. so I really wanted to to look at race in this context. And Sojourner Truth was an obvious person. But what I wasn't expecting was to find that humor was so much of the way that she presented herself. And so, using a, a very wry sense of humor to get a very, um, very bold statements across to white audiences in a way that would make them chuckle at something that was very biting, very, very critical of American society. I thought that that was a fascinating technique that she used. And so I started to wonder if maybe humor was something that I could explore. And it didn't take very long at all to find that a lot of historians had already been talking about Sarah Bunamaka in the same context, in this sense of using a, a wry humor to get across very critical comments about American society and how it was treating the Paiute people or, or other people of color. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. that's that's how that pairing came about. Yeah, that's interesting too, right? The way um, the the way people without power. I mean, that's that's one of the things that we're always talking about when we're doing gender history. But here, the way you use your limited power, how you control right. the small little bit of power you're, you're able to to handle. Right. Um, yeah. yeah, very cool. Um, is there anyone you dislike? Any of these women you <laughs> kind of are tired of? Um, you know, I, 
really did not. I enjoyed spending time with every single one of them. I was able to keep them within their context. I'm sure that I wouldn't be best friends with some of them because they're all <laughs> very driven, right? Mm-hmm. They're all, they're all um, very, very self-centered in a way because they had to be, right? Because they they needed to to pursue this avenue in order to make money. But um, I guess... I guess one person that is very famous that there has obviously been some reevaluation of is Harriet Beecher Stowe. And I did mm-hmm. see how she tried to use Sojourner Truth's image to make a bigger name for herself. And, and I, and it, so her, some of her stances, I mean, you know, she was obviously very important because of Uncle Tom's Cabin, but she seemed to have some racial ideas that made me dislike her in mm. in some contexts. So, yeah. Yeah, that, that's, that's fair. Mm. I can see that. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, one of the, I, I was, I'm reading this, right? And as I'm reading this, uh, Meghan Markle is having her interview with Oprah, like right. literally currently. And I was thinking about, yeah famous celebrity women trying to manage their uh image you know yeah. and uh, and how how you how like you can disappear into mm-hmm. like just what other people see so all you need to do is read some facebook comments or like right, right to see that w- there there's no person at the heart of this there's just right. other people's opinions about these people right yeah and do you feel like is that a new thing? I mean, do you feel like this applies to, back? Would you would you say that about these women that they're they become almost the property of someone else or the creation of someone else? I do. I I, I do think that that P. T. Barnum would have done that with Jenny Lind if she had allowed him to. I do feel that Fanny Elsler, to some extent, allowed that to happen. Um, so we have nothing from Fanny Elsler's voice herself. Uh, apparently, she did not give interviews. She she gave very brief little thank you speeches at the end of some of her performances. And those are really all the words that we have. We don't, we don't have any letters. There's, there is this collection of letters that that clearly historians have known for a long time was written by her publicity manager and not by her. So, so as far back as the 1830s, we do have some of these women who, who just have disappeared and all we have is this, is this image of them. Yeah. And, and I think that the, the chapter in which I deal most with the image where Fanny Fern, Lola Montez, mm-hmm. and Ada Mencken are the subjects, I think in that chapter I was able to show that Fanny Fern chose to do that. I mean, she had this private life that she wanted to keep secret, and then she took, so she took on this pseudonym, and then during the course of her celebrity, she almost becomes the pseudonym, right? She becomes Fanny Fern, and, you know, the the real Sarah, who, you know, was her was her given name, kind of disappears behind that, at least for public consumption, right? Mm-hmm. And so so I do I do see that as definitely being a theme of most of these women's lives as well. Yeah. Yeah, that chapter uh is performing off 
on and off stage, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. It's the idea that every facet, that life becomes a performance as well. Right. Yeah. Very interesting. Wow. So, um, so this is done and dusted. It's between covers. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Well done. So uh, what's next? What are you thinking about for your next project? Well, I'm actually continuing on this a little bit. So I I teach a class on American women celebrities. And so I wanted the students to have a possibility of publication. And so I started a blog, um, Women Celebrities Remembered and Forgotten. And i published some of the stories on the blog, but I've been publishing some of their articles about celebrities that I didn't get a chance to talk about in the book. And so so that's that's keeping me busy right now. I really have not decided on a next research project at all. I'm pretty content to to play around with this and to help the students to um, to do some research in this too. This feels like it's so much work. It's just such, it's such a big book. It starts so long ago, you know, I mean, as American history goes, it's a really big piece of work. And it feels like you, you you spent, this just must have taken a lot of time and bandwidth, what that feels like. Yeah, Um, it, it definitely, but I was lucky enough to get approved for a sabbatical, a year-long sabbatical. I don't think I ever would have been able to do the project without that. So I'm very thankful to Cotty College for giving me a sabbatical to be able to really hone in on these women's lives. And so I was very singularly focused during this project. So um, so as I was looking through newspapers and I didn't have a lot of other stuff and I, I actually said no to a lot of people. I became very, very True. selfish with my time. And because um, I knew that if I if I didn't at the end of the year-long sabbatical have at least a draft, then I was in trouble because it was going to be a hard thing to continue. But um, yeah, but so, so yeah, so it was good. No, learning to say no, that's such an important <laughs> thing, right? Like that's yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. And so many levels. Yeah. yeah. Periodically <laughs> taking that time for yourself. Yeah. It's yeah. very good. Yeah. Well done. Well, thank you so much. It has been a genuine pleasure to talk to you. Well, thank you. Um, and all right. So uh, has it, if, is it out yet? I know. Yes. Yeah. Yep. It is available. Yeah. So if you go to our website, New Books Network, uh, you you can click through to the link to Bookshop uh, and get your copy of of uh, this lovely, interesting, entertaining America's Early Women Celebrities. All right, take care. Thanks. You too. Bye bye.